0: Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty and we've got a special guest in the studio today. It's agronomist Rob Fritz, filling in for Brian today. Rob, thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, no problem. It's been a little while since I've been behind the microphone.
0: All right. So uh, I've had a lot of stuff going on this spring, getting planters ready to go. That's been a big topic. Another one was fertility just coming off last week's Neil Kinsey seminars here Wow, lots of lots of good information going into the spring.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's always good to start off the season. You know that timing for the Neil Kinsey seminar was super super good for me, kind of put your brain kind of back into that thought process, you know, we're spreading a little bit of fertilizer here when the ground is froze and a lot of my producers are talking about, "Hey, what can I do this spring? It's not too late. Let's uh move a needle on this or try to add a little bit more into that. And, you know, with the weather we're having right here, it's pretty easy to be optimistic. We had some pretty warm weather and uh, things are looking looking pretty good that we might get a decent start.
0: You know, that would be good. And there's there's been a lot of discussion about that of, all right, let's say that this is one of those years we could get in. Our crop insurance date for corn is April 10th you've been working with a lot of guys that do plant early and they've seen an advantage to this year in and year out. So so just a lot of debate. Well, man, is it going to be too cold and is cold a bad thing? But yet you're seeing some of the highest yields getting pulled off from some of those early planting things as well, just as long as soil conditions are fit. That's that's really the big key that I see.
1: Yeah. Last year we uh, got in in April on our first two fields. They ten- They turned out to be our our best yielding fields that we had uh, or amongst the best I think they were the best and the ground conditions were perfect cuz if you remember last year and this seems to happen almost every year you know we'll actually start the year really great field conditions and they'll go downhill for a while because we'll catch that rain event and things will get slimy and and kind of muddy and and that's the real frustrating part is it it tends to Right in the heart of when we want to plant is kind of when the weather's been at the worst the last few years. And before that, it was really nice because I remember being out there when we were planting those first two fields and I was like, man, this is like a garden. And then it rained and snowed and never stopped. It never stopped. And I was like, and those things came up gangbusters because we did, you know, we did the flag test. We were able to get out there and make sure they came up right. And, uh, you know, it was it was really impressive. It, it's unfortunate that the weather can drive us in or out of the field so quickly, but it's just part of, you know, this upper Midwest farming.
0: All right. Now let's talk about fertility, Rob, because last fall there was a wide range of conditions across farms that, that we've been speaking to all through the winter. Some guys got fall fertility on, others got manure on. And there are a lot of operations either with crops still in the field or just rough conditions. They couldn't get fertility out there. You lived through this in 2019 as well with many of the growers you work with. How did you advise them? Because there's quite a few farm operations that are gonna need that same advice in 2020.
1: Yeah, and I, I will tell you it's there's a there's a there's a thought process there. Um, you know, that you kind of gotta get past. And one of the things I've done a lot of my producers and I've talked a lot about it is to look at a, a more of a liquid program and to look at stuff that's going to be rapidly available you know you look at map dap potash they're a time weighted situation where it takes a certain amount of time for them to break down a certain amount of time for them to to get into suspension and a lot of times we rely on that winter so we apply them and then the winter starts breaking them down and they're limitedly available year one anyway. You know, we talk about map as a twenty percent year one best case scenario. We go into a spring application, you might not even be 10. You might not even be five. So I have a lot of guys that are like, you know what, let's let's do some liquid stuff. Let's do some two by twos. If we have those options, let's go that way. And we do have some high quality liquids that allow us the flexibility to do a Spring app. That's my first move. You know, um, the AMS that we've been using more and more of mixed with urea becomes another play too. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of things. I guess I don't worry about so much about nitrogen, but I certainly P and K, especially if you're going into a situation where you have low fertility levels, maybe you picked up a new piece or something like that.
0: All right. Other question that we've gotten a lot, Rob, is did the rebate programs this year, and there's tons of them, did they change your crop protection recs? Do you have growers that you're working with using products that they normally wouldn't use, but the price rebates made them so attractive that you had to say yes?
1: No, absolutely not. Now the name brand on the container might have changed, but the actual product uses I haven't changed anything. You know, now the way I I mean by that is motive action wise. You know, it's just when you look at like the harnesses and surpasses of the world, those kind of things, um, you know, I think of them as, as a a mode of action and a generalized type. Um, you know, I do a pre corn, pre beans. Um, nothing's changed. Uh, we may have moved things around a little bit, but I usually don't let those things drive my recommendations, but I do move within them to take the best advantage for the customer. So there is some adjustment, but mostly it's just the brand names may have changed. And I, I just – generally, agronomy-wise, I don't think we should ever let a program drive our decision. And, I mean, you may you may say that that's, yeah, that's cause where Yeah, because where
0: do you draw the line? Sometimes right. 25 cents an acre cheaper. Well, what's 25 cents an acre? That's a fraction of a bushel if you mess up right. and you don't kill some weeds – you got a big problem and you know just this morning i was talking with uh, a couple of people in the ag chemical industry about some of the different fungicides out there and just just talking about phytotoxicity and oh, you know what i have two choices here but one burns the crop or i could use one that's totally crop safe what do you, which one are you going to pick well what's the price difference and is it worth taking a risk you know those kind of things are, are good discussions to have with your agronomist too because if it's a product you're not familiar with make sure you get really familiar with that product before you use it. We'll be right back after this. Stay tuned. You're listening to AG PHD Radio.
2: Your land is a legacy, a challenge from those who tended it before you to build on their foundations. At Corteva Agriscience, we understand what it means to be the stewards of a legacy. We embrace the challenge of building on the foundation of Dow AgroSciences to maintain your trust to bring new solutions to help you care for your land. See how we can help build your legacy at rangeandpasture.com.
3: How much yield and profit did you lose the moment you put your seed in the ground? A poor stand at planning keeps your crops from reaching their yield potential, and closing the seed trench behind the planter is essential to establishing a good crop stand. The germinator closing wheel from Farmshop MFG is here to give your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. Act now to receive an early order rebate plus free shipping. Get ready for spring planting with the Germinator closing wheel. For more information, visit farmshopmfg.com.
0: When looking for someone to help with your risk management, a key component to look for is patience. Patience to bring you along in the process at your own speed. Patients to learn about your operation, and patients to not only discuss what strategies may be effective for your plan, but why they would be effective. That's the strength of Grain PhD. I'm Darren Hefty. When you're ready to become more engaged in your risk management, Grain PhD can assist you with that process. Visit GrainPhD.com to learn more. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio broadcasting from the Morton studio today. Taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD all throughout the show. You can also send us an email radio at agphd.com or find us on Twitter Ag PhD Media or Darren Hefty. Uh, let's get to Jim first. He's got a question for us on fertilizer. Jim, how you doing?
6: Pretty good.
2: Uh, first, if I could say, I mean, I'm real. Uh, appreciate how professional you guys put on an event. I've never been in an event which isn't uh, very well done, and and where you don't get something where you can take home and and try to improve what your practice is. So I appreciate that. I was at the Neal Kinsey event there.
0: Oh, so. awesome! Thanks, Jim. And you still have a fertilizer question. Did that generate more questions for you heading back to your operation?
2: Well, yeah, you uh, five hour drive and you do a lot of thinking. So,
0: <laughs> well, that's good. I'm glad you weren't uh, driving on icy roads and that kind of thing. So, at least you got to do a little thinking on the way back. So, what's this copper sulfate that you sent a picture of?
2: Uh, well, I'm I'm wanted to put some copper on this year. My uh, awesome. From, I've gotten lab, uh, recommendations back from Kinsey Labs, and uh, it calls for some. Uh, from copper sulfate on there and I found out the best way to put that on is to spray it on the on the ground not when the crop is up but on the ground and I'm just wondering if that product is having not bought any copper sulfate for that is the correct product that's about a 36 percent what they call 36 percent copper sulfate
0: well that one says it's 12 and percent sulfur and 25.2 percent copper. percent all right, Rob, you've worked with yeah. some different yeah. copper sources. What are you looking at? Yeah, for?
1: it's 25% copper. That's a fine source. What you're looking at there is a feed-grade copper, which is perfectly acceptable for what you're looking to do. And that's uh, there's two different grades. You know, you have a feed-grade and a fertilizer-grade. Um, so this is actually a higher-grade copper uh, or copper sulfate. And But that's that's absolutely stuff that we've used before. Uh, Put that out in the field. The big thing you want to test before you go to the field is just do some jar testing for water solubility. It should be fine, should be fine. And then make sure you acidify your water. Copper sulfate likes to be in low pH water. So if you can get your water down on pH, um, that will really help pull that copper sulfate into solubility form. The the water right will do that? Absolutely, absolutely. That's... That's my preference if I can get it. I mean, it's a controlled pH drop, so that's one of the reasons why we put it together the way we did. But, yeah, there's some things that want to be high pH. I don't think that was probably talked about enough, but if you're doing any molybdenum, uh, you know, he has a lot of recommendations on molly. Uh, that likes a high pH, so in that regard, I would not be putting anything into the water. I'd let that pH stay high. Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay. I guess that's my question. Thanks,
0: guys. All right. Thanks a lot, Jim. really appreciate it. Uh, Let's head out to Indiana. We've got Jeff on with us right now. Jeff, how are you today?
5: I'm fine. How are you guys?
0: Good. Good. I understand uh, you're thinking about potassium a little bit.
7: Yeah. You were talking Friday a little bit about base saturation on potassium. And so the lab we use has a – they use TEC, total exchange. And so is the – Five to seven percent that we, you're talking about is that pretty consistent from lab to lab? No matter who we are, as far as if it's a Kinsey or an ANL or whatever.
0: You know the the TEC then would be along the lines of how Neo Kinsey runs their their tests. We haven't found it to be a whole lot different. The TEC, as opposed to uh, just your straight up base saturation, which just has five nutrients, also includes other bases and. Uh, Rob, if you've got a TEC, is that still the range you're shooting for? For me, I, I would say it would be pretty close.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you know, 4 to 7 is a realistic number. I, I would tell you probably the biggest thing I see is is labs that aren't calculating a sodium. And it, it really only matters if you're in certain parts of the country. So if you're, you know, in the south or in sandy soils, that, that sodium won't stick around. So that's why those people don't really measure that. But in if you can get up in our country here with the heavier clay soils and say you were, you had a problem with some water quality or wet low areas or just maybe something that got the sodium up, be it a, a manure situation, you could actually see that kind of alter the test a little bit and actually kind of throw things off. Because I mean I've seen sodium base saturations, you know, at Three, five, seven, twelve. Well, that's that's really going to mess with your base saturation if you start if you start missing that component.
7: Okay, and you want the sodium under one.
1: Ideally, in uh, yeah, ideally one or less.
7: Yes. Yeah, we're we're a CEC of about ten to twenty here.
1: Okay, okay, that's a you know that's pretty pretty decent middle of the road soils then. Yep.
0: Yep, not too heavy, okay. not too light.
1: Yeah, percolate yeah, pretty just well. Kinda, just kind of mushy. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, a lot of, lot of those types of soils lately here the last few years where well, yeah. it's gone. Did you guys dry out, though, at the end of the year, or or you've been wet yeah. all the way through?
7: No, we dried out. Uh, really, we got too dry in August, and we really could have stood a little more rain right in our community for some bean size. Um, winter's been pretty dry, pretty warm. Uh, not really much field work dry, but uh, been a little tiling going in, not a lot. And just guys are just starting to, to do a little manure work now.
0: There you go. It sounds like right where we're at, too. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. Really appreciate the call. and And uh, good luck with your potassium build.
7: Thank you very much. Have a great day.
0: You too. You know, we get a lot of those questions, Rob, about trying to get soils in balance. I thought that was a good thing with the Neil Kinsey seminar, just discussing. You know, you can have too much of any of these nutrients. I mean, you can have too much potassium; it can cause you a problem. You definitely can have too much nitrogen, and that can create some issues out there. The the um, other thing that I took from Neil's talk was all right we've got an excess of something let's focus on some of the other nutrients that were short on and maybe by building those up we can get things back in balance so there's a couple of different ways to to look at the same picture out in a field
1: yeah it's it's one of those things that I I think that when you fully understand the reasoning for why the conversations are happening it kind of actually makes it easier for people to, kind of grasp the idea and what it's really about is managing that soil porosity, you know, your water balance, your air balance in the soil and and getting that, you know, ample amounts of fertility to the plant. So the the crazy thing that I kind of took home again after redoing it is you know, this is like the third one I think we've done. Um You know, if you get too much calcium in your soil, you can actually get calcium tie-up. If you get too much magnesium in your soil, you can actually get too much tie-up. So those ranges become important because in the zones above or below those ranges, which are more ideal, and and it depends on your soil on which is considered the more ideal, it, it actually helps you to understand what you're going to be short on the plant cuz you know we got guys with 90% calcium in their soils on the base saturation yet they're calcium deficient. So those things
0: become and, and magnesium, same kind of right. way we've got guys with 30 and 40% mag and, and they can't get it into the plant.
1: Yeah, and it's like it makes no sense, but it's and that's the that's why you have to have this conversation to make that awareness, you know. Um just looking at your pH doesn't guide your decision-making process. You need this next layer of data, whether you're going to try to balance it or just live with it. You know, maybe you just need to foliar feed some calcium to get by knowing you have this problem. But if you don't measure it, you can't understand, you know, pH is just a, a term. It doesn't really tell you anything. You need this next level of data to actually make a decision. And that's, and that's where the big separation is. Is just to understand that this is a layer of data that gives you that deeper dive into why. Because I see a pH eight. Why? Is it mag? Is it calcium? Is it sodium? Which one requires a different thought process to make higher yields?
0: You know, I, I liked how many growers had soil tests from five, 10, 20 years ago, and then compared to today, mm-hmm. pulled in the same area where they could see, you know what, here's what I've been changing. I've been liming, and I've been trying to bring my pH up, and here's what it's done to the other nutrients in my field, too, because so often we see when you make one big change, it sets off a chain reaction, oftentimes for the good, but occasionally it goes the opposite way, too, and it's kind of nice to track some of those things in fields. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio.
3: Hey, Adam. New drone? Not just any drone. I mounted a laser on it to take out weeds. Look out for that tree! In the power line! Oh, it's in for the house.
8: There's a simpler way to protect spring wheat from weeds Perfect Match Herbicide. The broadest spectrum weed and grass control in one product. Learn more at PerfectMatchHerbicide.com. Always read and follow label directions.
4: The laser. Hey, Bill, any advice to control tough weeds and rootworms? That's easy, Jim. Buy two, save three. Wait, for weeds and rootworms? Buy two, save
3: three. Combine your Impact or new Impact Z herbicide purchase with a qualifying insecticide and save $3 per acre. Buy two, save three. That is good advice. For
1: details, go to buy2save3.com impact impact z and buy 2 Safe three are trademarks owned by Amvac chemical corporation all rights reserved impact z is a restricted use pesticide always
9: read and follow label instructions find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic insecticides from atticus llc unwanted insects are a nuisance but they're no match for serpent from atticus serpent delivers economical fast acting broad spectrum control to help your corn soybeans and wheat crops thrive Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit atticusllc.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions.
3: When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with the Roundup Ready Extend crop system. The system that makes
1: the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system for control of more weeds than any other soybean system featuring Extendamax herbicide with vapor grip technology to manage tough to control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. ExtendaMax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations
3: for specific requirements in your state. How much yield did you lose the moment you planted your seed? Introducing the Germinator Closing Wheel from FarmShop MFG. Designed and built by a farmer tired of seeing yield loss from poor stands, the Germinator gives your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. Visit farmshopmfg.com.
4: Tired of that old warped poly boom ruining your spray applications? Express Boom from Hypro is a fully assembled stainless steel boom that ensures an even application of chemicals every time. Don't wait another season. Upgrade today. Hypro. Helping you spray better. We're
0: listening to Ag PhD Radio broadcasting from the Morton studio today and... We start off the show with a couple of callers. And if you want to call, you sure can. If you've got an agronomic question, we would love to help you. It's 844 44 phd We've had a lot of requests to do a show discussing Bermuda grass and to have some experts on Bermuda grass on the show. Today is that day. We're going to be talking about Bermuda grass here. And again, if you've got questions, you can call us. You can also email radio at agphd.com got Vanessa Corrier Olson on with us right now with Texas A&M. Vanessa, thanks for joining us.
6: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So we're corn and soybean and wheat guys in the north, and we get so many people that are listening to our show that say, oh, man, need to hear more about Bermuda grass." And with all the questions that we're getting, we think, man, there must be a lot of Bermuda grass in the south. So what can you tell us about Bermudagrass that, that's a little different about that crop that, that we need to be aware of?
6: Okay, so gosh, probably could spend a whole show exactly um, just talking about Bermuda grass. So it is an what we refer to as an introduced forage species. Most people are surprised that it is not native to the United States, but it was brought in. It's a very tropical forage, so it is well adapted to the southeastern part of the United States, from Georgia, South Carolina, all the way over into East Texas where I'm located, as well as parts of southern Oklahoma, even up into um, southeastern parts of Arkansas, and throughout the southeast. southeast. It's primarily used throughout the southeast as a kind of our basis of our forage systems for hay production and livestock. Um, It is a warm season perennial. It is well adapted to the southeastern environment, having warmer temperatures, oftentimes higher average annual rainfalls, as well as some of our varieties are well adapted to drought conditions. Which, of course, are very common, especially in states like Texas and Oklahoma. All right. Um,
0: talking, about, talking about this crop, Vanessa, when I, when I think about a lot of growers that are raising it for forage, what do you do to get the most tonnage? How do you influence that?
6: Okay. So, Bermuda grass production is highly influenced by fertilization. So, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, as well as rainfall um, so those are two big key factors that are going to influence our yield and our production. And then even more importantly, our persistence of Bermuda grass.
0: You know, when you talk about East Texas and, and I think about the rain, sometimes you're getting lots of rain, sometimes you're not. Is there a tolerance for dryland production?
6: Um, there. In regards to Bermuda grass, we have different varieties, and some varieties are more drought tolerant, such as Tifton 85. Bermuda grass um, is very tolerant to drought, to to a point, of course. Um, tolerance of drought is also going to be dependent on fertilization, especially potassium inputs. Um, and th- throughout the southeast, with our very sandy soils, we tend to be deficient in potassium where we have sandy soils in those locations. Um, So that's why fertility becomes really important on the persistence and the drought tolerance of Bermuda grass and some of our varieties. There are other varieties, such as Jigs Bermuda grass, that is actually not drought tolerant and is very well adapted to high moisture environments, such as creek bottoms or potentially locations that will flood, especially as we get into parts of our southeast that are below sea level.
0: You know, I'm, I'm thinking about when you mentioned the potassium in sandy soils, and this is something we fight in all crops of just having available fertility when we need that. Um, as, as you're looking at some of these fertility issues, where do you see farmers making those applications? Are they making them in the spring or are they making them in the fall or are they making them during the growing season?
6: Well, that's an excellent question. It's probably very different on a case-by-case basis. Um, Most of our producers, majority of their fertilization is going to occur at the beginning of the season, especially for pastures. For our hay producers, hopefully they are splitting those applications throughout their hay harvest season. Um, And that is one unique thing about Bermuda grass, um, and there may be other crops that are very similar, but Bermuda grass is a luxury consumer of potassium, so for our sandy soil locations. We highly recommend splitting those potassium applications and not applying any more than 75 pounds of potassium per acre at a time, um, because of such. I mean, a producer could apply, you know, potassium based on a soil analysis at the beginning of the season, but if they're applying, you know, 100 to 120 pounds of K2O at that point, uh, by the time they get to the end of the season, they could actually have a deficiency in potassium in that Bermuda grass. And they might start to see, you know, an increase in weed issues or thinning of that Bermuda grass sand and potentially some issues during the winter and moving on into the next season.
0: Now, when it comes to Bermuda grass production, when we're looking at these nutrient applications, I I was just thinking about this, too. when, When you talked about doing split application of K, I would assume we're doing the same thing with nitrogen, sulfur, boron, these types of nutrients that are even more leachable than what the potassium could be?
6: So uh, nitrogen, absolutely splitting those applications um, just with the mobility of nitrogen from leaching, volatilization, and our very humid and en- environments and then very sandy soils in East Texas and throughout the Southeast. So we absolutely recommend splitting that nitrogen application. Um, sulfur can be an issue in some of our sandier soils for Bermuda grass. Um, in my experience and knowledge, I haven't seen any issues with boron on Bermuda grass, but there's very little data on Bermuda grass production and some of those micronutrients.
0: When it comes to insect control, this is one of the things that we hear with, with some different crops. I know in cotton we have just a tough time with certain bugs. Are there any insects that are a problem time in and time out with, with Bermuda grass?
6: Uh, yes, there are. Um, I kind of giggle because that's a, something I get a lot of questions about in East Texas and, and my fellow colleagues throughout the Southeast. So, a couple of insect pests, um, one being the fall armyworm, um, can be detrimental to our Bermuda grass pastures and hay meadows um, during you know the fall, and even at times throughout the summer if we have moisture and some cooler temperatures that support those armyworm populations. Um, Uh, grasshoppers can at times be an issue, especially if we're of hot, dry conditions that are prone to happen in Texas and throughout the southeast in the summers. And then, unfortunately, most recently um, for Texas, our first reports were in 2012, we have the Bermuda grass stem maggot. Um, It's a pest, insect pest, that's not native to the United States. Um, Some earlier reports were in Georgia back in about 2009-2010, and unfortunately it's become an insect pest throughout the entire southeast. Just about, if you have Bermuda grass, you probably have the Bermuda grass stem maggot.
0: So what are the methods of control at this point? Is it crop rotation? Is that the main thing that you can do, or are there some foliar soilipide treatments that are having any effect at all?
6: Well, on the Bermuda grass stem maggot, our our first recommendation is if a producer sees damage in a hay meadow, um, the damage is the loss of the top two to three leaves of that Bermuda grass plant. So it's going to have a huge impact on yield. We recommend that producers go ahead and harvest that crop um, to minimize the impact on yield and then follow within seven to 10 days with an application of a pyrethroid insecticide that is labeled for pasture and hay production and we have a lot of those um, that are out there on the market. If they do see damage in a pasture, which is, is gonna be more common when we have more forage production, as opposed to um, stocking rates or animal units within that pasture system, um, you may see damage in those environments as well. The pyrethroid application is, is our best method of control. And unfortunately, that pyrethroid is only controlling the adult fly not the actual maggot because the maggot is in the stem of the plant and basically is protected. And I have not come across as of yet any research that shows supports any insect growth regulators or any other pesticides that have an impact on that maggot within the stem.
0: No, we haven't found any, and we've got very similar problems in wheat with the wheat stem sawfly and in soybeans with the soybean gall midge, where we've got insects laying eggs inside that stem. That just seems to be one of the toughest challenges in ag right now is to find an answer for that. I've been talking with Vanessa Corrier Olson uh, with Texas A&M. Vanessa, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on.
6: Oh, absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you. Talking about Bermuda grass on today's program, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this.
4: You know a healthy crop is required for your best results. Simply put, balanced crop nutrition pays. AgriLiquid fertilizers have the research, technology, and products to deliver those results. We also have an outstanding team of field agronomists ready to help you with your fertility decisions. AgroLiquid can help you maximize your yield potential effectively and economically. Visit AgriLiquid.com to find a dealer near you.
3: White mold, sudden death syndrome, root rot. If you raise soybeans, it may seem like you have all the cards stacked against you when it comes to disease. But did you know there is a new cost-effective seed treatment which can help prevent all three? Heads Up Seed Treatment offers a new proactive approach for dealing with fungal and bacterial diseases. Compatible with other seed treatments, hedge your bet against disease this spring. Ask your dealer for Heads Up today. To locate a dealer, visit HeadsUpST.com.
4: You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com
6: your grain bin fans can cost you a lot. High electric bills from running when conditions are not ideal, shrinkage from overdried grain, and spoiled grain all take money out of your pocket. With the Steps GMS app, temperature-humidity switch, get your bin fans to start making you money. Only run vans when the conditions are right. Eliminate shrink and spoilage in your bins. Deliver grain in top condition at market moisture. When every dollar counts, you need Steps GMS. Contact us today at StepsGMS.com.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton Studio today, taking your calls and questions throughout the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. Our topic today is on a crop that we don't grow on our farm. It's called Bermuda grass. And yeah, we're in the north and we're talking about a much more tropical plant than we can grow up here. So we've got some experts on to help us today. We've got Lauren Mulder on right now down in Texas. Who works with viral granulation, Lauren? Thank you so much. Really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, it's a pleasure to
7: be on. Thank you for the invitation.
0: All right, there's there's a lot of things that we can talk about. I guess uh, when I think about Bermuda grass, just like any other crop, getting us off to a great start is is really important. What are some of the things that growers should be concerned about getting their Bermuda off to the best start possible? Well.
7: Honestly, I'm a big believer in soil testing, and I like working with you Nils know, and Um a real pleasure to be up there with you guys last week. Y'all are such good hosts that just like any other crop, if you don't know what's in the soil, you don't know what you need to put back in to uh, get that crop off to a good start. So to me, a good, sound soil test that covers not just your NPK but your calcium, magnesium, and all the micronutrients you're going to need uh, to get that grass off to a good start. Um,
0: yeah, it is a big deal. I, I agree with you. No matter what crop we're doing, if we've got a fertility imbalance out there, we're going to be behind the eight ball all the way through the season trying to keep that crop go- growing. We were talking with Vanessa or Olson at Texas A&M just about some of the challenges that you've had in your state with Bermudagrass. What are what are some of the things that the top growers are doing to get better tonnage and, and better Bermuda grass
7: growth? It's like a lot of crumb growers, they've uh, figured out that uh, put back in the nutrients aren't there on a regular basis. The plant's just a lot healthier and a lot more robust, and they're not afraid to feed the grass, especially after every cutting so they can recover and they can get an additional cutting. If they've got an aggressive fertility program, they can easily get three or four good cuttings a year. Um unless Mother Nature really throws us a curveball, but it's been kind of the opposite. We've been having early springs and late falls. We've had protracted growing seasons. It gives us the opportunity to get an extra cutting in if you've got the nutrition going back into the ground to support that regrowth and aggressive recovery.
0: You know, with the fertility in between cuttings, are growers using disease protection, uh, insect protection, those types of treatments as well at that time?
7: Typically not. Uh, Bermuda is very, very hardy. Um, there are a few bugs that will get on it rarely do we see a disease on it Um, it just it's uh, it's almost bulletproof especially if you're giving it the proper fertility and what I've seen is especially when we get the right micronutrients out in the right ratios a lot of the disease and pest issues really seem to fall back into the background with a healthier plant and it's just amazing to see that time and time again as somebody finally starts to put in the right micronutrients and their uh, need to have to rely on a rescue treatment just doesn't seem to happen as often or as frequently. And more often than not, the uh, cost of the micronutrients is less than what the rescue treatments would have been to keep that grass growing throughout the season.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's the same in in the crops that we're raising in the north. If we can get ahead of things and just supplement a little bit during the growing season, that's a great way to go. When we look at some of those nutrients, are growers doing some plant tissue analysis through the season, or how do you determine as the season's going on
7: what could be added to that field to help? They're not doing a lot of tissue analysis on on the breed hay. Uh, usually, they're looking back on their initial school test, knowing that they didn't put everything recommended back in, that they're going to have to supplement that with some kind of fuller program throughout the season to...
0: I think we're losing Lauren's uh, cell phone connection here let's see if we can see if we can update that I you know when we're looking at at what's going on with soil tests I I agree with Lauren that's definitely the the best place to start and you can certainly pull tests as the season goes on to see if you've got some nutrients that are starting to come available we like to look a lot of times in season even for nitrate levels just to see how we're doing with that but with many crops like Bermuda you may already have a standard plan of how i'm going to spoon feed nitrogen through the season especially on those lighter soils that are out there um one one other thing that came up to talking with vanessa corrier olson about the the insect issues with bermuda grass uh with the stem maggot that's one that's going to be really interesting and i think there's a lot of Lot of crops out there that we can lean on each other to learn from. So we may not have the perfect answer for those maggots once they're inside the plant, but we can attack the adults. And it's the same thing we're seeing in wheat, same thing we're seeing in soybeans. If we can attack those adults that are flying around, we've got a shot there. Um, Lauren, I think we've got the cell phone issue worked out here. You know, you're talking about nutrition and and that plant tissue testing isn't isn't as big of a deal, but but guys are just looking at that soil test to kind of. Kennedy determine a spoon feeding program for the season
7: yes sir uh, typically if they've got that hay uh, growing well they're going to be cutting it within six or eight weeks of the prior cutting so uh, it's a lot of chasing it with some granules and then trying to follow up with a couple sprays and then hopefully it's ready to cut again uh, if everything's going uh, correctly and, and the plant's nice and healthy um, you know uh, we have seen a little bit of bermudagrass mite um in our drier years but that's a really really difficult pest to pin down or to control and it's really inconsistent when it shows up it just tends to be when we get our protracted droughts that that little bugger may show up and they're just terribly difficult to because they stay down in between the leaf sheet and the stem they're just kind of like those little mayus. once they get down in there it's really hard to get any insecticide to get in contact with them to get any control and uh Outside of that, the fall armyworms, the closer you are to the Gulf Coast, uh, the more regular you'll see them every year. And as you move away from the coast and inland, you may not see them every year, but uh, they're always a threat. And when they do come in, it's they'll take a cutting by themselves within a matter of days. Uh, they're so aggressive and so devastating in their numbers when they come in.
0: Yeah, they sure are. Fortunately, we've got some control methods that, that we can use if you catch it. If you catch it, that's exactly right. you got to be scouting. Uh, one other thing, Lauren, when you think about weed control, we've got a lot of questions about grass control in Bermuda grass. What are some of the tougher species to get under control and are there any that you just haven't found a great method yet?
7: We've got a lot of self-know ureas that can give us different grassy weeds control. Um, the problem is I don't know that a lot of guys or that it's legal to use MSMA. Although Bermuda is very, very tolerant of it uh, to get rid of most of your grassy weeds. But a lot of times um, we'll see barnyard grass, um, even some goose grass and Johnson grass try and come in. The Johnson grass can't tolerate uh, the cutting when they're hanging like some of the other grasses can. Uh, But honestly, a a good thick dense canopy is your best pre-emergent and just not trying to cut it too short when you take that those cuttings off so you've got enough to recover from quickly that we're not getting too close to the ground where we've got a lot of sunlight hitting that soil to get those weeds to germinate.
0: Yeah, I like that strategy and I talk to a lot of growers that have pa- pastures that they're grazing and it's kind of the same thing. If we can just feed the crop, have it healthy and get good canopy out there without cutting things too short we can really choke out that next weed that wants to try to get through how short do you cut the bermuda grass
7: when you're harvesting that i've got guys that are all over the place i know i also work with uh golf courses and sod farms and they'll mow it at an inch and a half or two inches for maintaining it for decorative turf but most of our hairs will try and get them up to at least six inches or higher if they have the equipment to do that just because, again, it leaves us more stubble or more residual grass to recover from. And the Bermuda will look unsightly for maybe five days, and it's putting on new green growth immediately and coming back very quickly, especially if we've got any kind of irrigation or moisture in the soil at all. It, uh, it loves the heat, and if it's humid, that makes it even happier.
0: Yeah, that's a great tip. We don't want to get stuff cut too short if we want to get good regrowth and, and also keep those weeds out of there. been talking with Lauren Mulder with Granulation down in Texas. Lauren, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today.
7: I appreciate it. And, again, thank you guys for hosting last week. That was a wonderful, wonderful seminar. And I know you had a tremendous turnout. And I just encourage the rest of the listeners, if they haven't made it up there for one of them, if you're going to have Neil back again, that is a not-miss seminar awesome thank you Lauren really really
0: appreciate that yeah we had a lot of good comments coming out last week Neil Kinsey of course is is uh, one of a kind no doubt about that great information regardless of what crops you're raising and honestly I thought Lauren Mulder did a great job with this today too that just like we think about other crops we've got to start with a good soil test that addresses all the nutrients that crop needs to avoid problems during the season stay tuned we'll be right back
4: Bean growers continue to see yield loss from white mold across the Midwest this season. To maximize next year's crop, a white mold prevention strategy that includes Contans WG soil fungicide is a must for your farming operation. Applying Contans this fall to reduce the sclerotia in the soil is the most effective way to stop white mold at its source. Start a Contans white mold control strategy this fall or pay for it later in lost yield. We know balanced crop nutrition pays. AgriLiquid has the research, technology, and products you need to grow a great crop. Plus, the expertise to give you a recommendation based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. AgriLiquid has the phosphorus, potassium, and micronutrient products necessary to deliver the best results from a solid fertility program. Visit AgriLiquid.com to find a dealer near you.
9: Grain temp guard from
3: Farmshop MFG has helped farmers keep their bushels safe from spoilage and shrinkage loss in bins all across the country and this low-cost solution just became even more affordable. Farmshop MFG is offering a $100 factory rebate on all grain temp guard bin monitoring systems. This offer is available for a limited time only so take advantage of this program now to upgrade your bins and protect your crop investments. For more information visit
9: farmshopmfg.com. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic herbicides from Atticus LLC. Tough broadleaf weeds are a hassle, but they're no match for Cavallo from Atticus. Cavallo delivers fast, contact, and residual control so your corn, soybean, and sorghum crops can thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit atticusllc.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today, uh, talking about Bermuda grass on the show. And as I mentioned a couple of times, and it's probably pretty obvious by by my basic questioning. We're not raiser we not farmers who raise Bermuda grass here in South Dakota, but in the south and southeast part of the country it's a really important crop. I've got Tom with us right now. He's down in Oklahoma. Tom, how are you today? Good. All right, so are you grazing Bermuda? Or are you raising it for hay? How, how are you involved with this crop?
5: Both. It's our predominant grass. It's basically indestructible. I mean, it, last summer it was under flood water on the Arkansas River for two weeks, and then it'll grow on pretty shallow soil. And we go from good alluvial to sometimes some fairly rocky hillsides. So it. It's it's just it's tough. I'm not saying always saying it's the best grass. We have better grasses on ranches in the Texas Panhandle, actually, but it doesn't rain and they're not as strong. Here, we're predominantly Bermuda grass.
0: All right. So let's say that you're haying the Bermuda grass. What is your harvest interval? How often are you cutting?
5: If you irrigate it, you can you, you know if it's sprinkler irrigated, you can probably cut it every four to six weeks. Now if it's waiting on rainfall, it's just when you get the next good rain.
0: Sure. Sure. How about with the grazing? Is it something where you've got to manage stocking rates pretty tightly to, to keep it down to some degree or, or, or is, do you have much challenge with it getting stemmy as it gets older?
5: It would be better if you rotated more and, and grazed it more intensively, but it's not imperative. Again, it's, it's almost indestructible. That's what we like about it.
0: All right, when you think about that, okay, so we've got this indestructible grass out there. How often are you taking a Bermuda grass stand out and putting a different crop in that field? Never. So once you've got it it's established, it's a permanent...
5: What we call, a lot of what we call, so we have some different varieties, some midland, some improved, but a lot of what we have, we just call it common, and it will actually encroach. It'll spread. And if you take care of it and feed on poor ground and use chicken litter, it'll, it'll come on. It's, it'll take over. Now we have some fescue that we've seeded over the past. And eventually it'll, it'll almost be overtaken by the Bermuda grass. Now you get north of me. I'm in, I'm in cent- east central Oklahoma. When you go to northwest Arkansas and it's predominantly fescue, it won't do as well north of here. We're, I'm not telling you where the cutoff, but we're getting pretty far north.
0: Okay, so when you, you look at that Bermuda grass, it's it's been a pretty tough, indestructible, as you described it, grass for you. What are the challenges? Is weed control an issue? Is fertility an issue? What, what, well, what helps make control, it more successful?
5: Weed control is here... You know, any invader species is a problem, blackberry, sumac, all of that. We rotate chemicals every year. This this year actually we'll put uh thirty two percent and we'll run Cimarron. I believe it's Cimarron Plus It's what we've got this year. Okay. I think it's Maxim, it's plus. Uh, last year we ran on Next everywhere. Uh, it's a good chemical. The Cimarron works well on blackberries. Now, once we start getting what we call green briars, uh, those those horrible green vines with stickers all over them, we usually go to a Banville, either Weedmaster or something like that. Uh, this year, actually, we're going to put Cimarron out quite early with our fertilizer to try to get a push because we were behind it. We've been so wet, we're behind on everything, in the little winter annuals, they're not good, but we're going to push them as much as we can. Uh, it's uh, As far as management, if you take care of it at all, now if you don't take care of it, sage bluestem will overtake it, especially if you don't lime accordingly because... grass doesn't like terribly acidic soil. It loves chicken litter, and we put chicken litter out anytime we can get it. But the houses are on rotation, so you you, you can't really guarantee you're going to get chicken litter. So we always put nitrogen out, and we usually, you know, liquid nitrogen with a floater truck, you can put herbicide and chemical out in one pass. You can also impregnate fertilizer with graze on next. But we, since we switch chemicals every year, I don't want to get in a trap with graze on next that we did with Roundup. Yes, and absolutely. We keep switching chemistry.
0: You know, you mentioned the, the flooding and tough conditions that we had in 2019 in so much of the country. What, how has that impacted your farm when you look at going into 2020? Are fields in good shape? Do you have a lot of work you have to do to try and repair things?
5: Some of both. What's so interesting about the Bermuda grass? Uh, we raise rice too, and we got we pump out of a out of a pond. Uh, it's a pit they dug when they built the interstate, and in 1985, we pumped it down, and it was that pit was dug in '57, and Bermuda grass started growing down the banks. So last year. The, we stayed underwater for probably ten days to two weeks and it took all of our winter annuals, all of our yellow hop, all of that was gone. And by July and August we had knee deep Bermuda grass again. And that that one particular pasture has got quite a few cows on it and and nothing's nothing's growing in it yet but Bermuda so we'll be feeding hay in it longer just because it took it took all those annuals, I guess I guess the annuals and the seed either buried them with silt, but the Bermuda grass is actually growing through back sand and silt that's six to twelve inches deep. Wow. And it, and when it gets in cropland, it's extremely hard to take care of because you can spray it you can spray it with Roundup, but you have to use heavy rates two or three times. Now the one biggest issue that we have that we haven't completely controlled our grass burrs in the sand. You can run two quarts of prowl about this time of year, but the problem you have if you're grazing it is you can't run the prowl. And if you're if you're just going to hay it, you can run the prowl, and then there's a chemical called pastora that works well for grass burrs, but it's kind of hard on the grass, and gets hot and dry. You're kind of scared to do that. But yeah. it's not... It's not. It's, it's, it's tough. I mean it is, it is extremely tough.
0: Yeah, there aren't a lot of grass choices in grass crops, so you're right. That that makes those decisions difficult with Pastora. You look at the selectivity of that product where it kills one plant completely and doesn't harm the other. Well, it's not necessarily there, as you mentioned, with the Bermuda grass. I know it's been one of the challenges. Good product, though, but but it's got, got some limitations, and the prowl is something well, in- that we're using even in lawns and golf courses, that same pendimethalin to try to tackle things, but it's it's got to work in through the soil, so you need a little more- to make that thing work too
5: well and, and you've got to have you know when if you think about it in March you really don't want to feed hay just keep feeding 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 you're you're, you're wanting to put put them out there at least to let the cows graze anything green I mean they're they're just happy seeing in green and I forget I think you have to keep cows off of it for two weeks or a month anyway it hardly ever works on pastures to put out prowl. But now on a, on a straight hay meadow that you're not going to touch, it works great.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I know there's some guys trying to use prowl at different times of year, but you're right, the spring applications can be can be pretty tricky. And we're talking with Tom down in Oklahoma. Tom, we're out of time here on the show today, but really appreciate all the information. Thanks for, for sharing with us on the show, and good luck heading into the spring.
5: Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: You bet. Thank you been talking about Bermuda grass today, and we've also had a number of questions come into the Ag PhD mailbag. I'm not going to have time to catch any of these today, so we'll try to get to as many of those as we can tomorrow. I just had one comment uh, that Greg had shared with us. He said, after we go through all the expense of one acre grid sampling on our farm and buying the potash that we need to get out there, we really have to be careful about the wind. We've seen some people out spreading in the area that aren't fussy about that the potash that we're spreading has so much dust in it we just want to make sure we get that out in the field so anyways i just uh, appreciate what we do and we're talking about base saturation k once again on the show hey greg thanks for the support thanks for the comment that you had there as well really appreciate that thanks for listening to our show today be sure to join us again each weekday for more ag phd radio now stay tuned for rob Sharkey and shark farmer radio